Well, welcome. Hey, can you believe it's one week from Easter? I know that we've talked about it a lot, but I know the Kentucky weather would uh, beg to differ, but the calendar says it's spring, I promise, right? And uh, <clears throat> it was hailing on Friday, it was snowing during the egg hunt, and then Keeneland is running in the sunshine today. It's amazing what's going on here. But um, it, it is, and uh, spring is a fun time of year for a lot of people, for me especially, uh, Baseball season, opening day was this past week. I know we've got some baseball fans here, yeah, and we, we've got a little league playing, and so I've got two boys playing. We're having a lot of fun with that, but, um, but it's also uh, Masters weekend. I know we've got some golf fans and that sort of thing, and so that's always a fun time. And then, um, you know, for like the true fans, it is college football spring scrimmage season too. And so you can check those out on like ESPN, the Ocho, but um, regardless, hey, it's a fun season. And uh, I, I'm glad that you're here with us today. We've been in this series called the gospel of Mark, and we've just been trekking through the life and ministry of Jesus all the way up to Easter. And that means we're kind of coming to a conclusion with this story. But um, today, today is gonna be a little bit heavy. Today, it is Palm Sunday, but if you go back to, uh, to the archives, uh, I gave a message about the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday a few weeks ago because we're trekking along through the Gospel of Mark. And so today, we're actually talking about the crucifixion. All right, and, and so we're gonna kind of connect all of this together. And we know, we know, spoiler alert, Jesus is alive. And absolutely, that is worth celebrating. That's what we're gonna point to, that we have hope because Jesus overcame death and the grave. Jesus is alive. But, but that good news, the good news of the resurrection is only made better when we realize just how dark and dim and bad it really got. And so let me take this moment to just give a plug for our Northeast Kids Ministry. Okay, so parents, if you do have any kids with you, just, just I would encourage you to take advantage of um, our children's ministries from little nursery all the way up to fifth grade and that sort of thing. They've got great age-specific content and that sort of thing. So this isn't going to be inappropriate. It's just heavy because it's weighty. We're talking about the death of Christ. And, um, you know, a few weeks ago, somebody mentioned to me, they said, you know, I, I don't think that the laughs in the room are always the best indicator of how funny some of your jokes are. And I thought, I don't know if that's a compliment. Um, but I'll say this today, though it's April, today is not a day for jokes. It's not. It's not a day for me to be cute. I don't have a lot of stories and that sort of thing. You're not going to ooh and ah over, you know, cute pictures of my kids. Today's just different. Because the cross demands it. The cross is grueling. The cross is murderous. The cross is hellish. And the cross is ours. It's the penalty that pierced Jesus' body and his heart and his soul and his mind. But it was due to our sin. And so, yes, the resurrection is coming. But we have to pause and lean in and unpack the crucifixion. And so that's what we're doing Today, we're going to look at the darkest hour in human history, the day that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was crucified. So like Micah said, Mark chapter 15, hopefully you got your Bibles and you're there with me. Um, if not, you're on you version or you're tracking along in that sense. But today's message, uh, beginning with uh, Mark chapter 15, we're going to start verse 16, but I'll give a little backstory. Brennan brought us up to this very moment last week that, that Jesus 
Jesus has just been sent away to go be flogged, all right? And, and so here's the deal. Pilate has just released Barabbas to the chanting Jewish crowds in exchange for the death sentence of Jesus. Okay, so if you remember this, Pontius Pilate, he comes out, he says, hey, it's tradition. I'm gonna free one of these prisoners. And he said, who do you want? You want Jesus, his spotless record? You want Barabbas, this insurrectionist and murderer? And they said, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so he releases Barabbas. And, it, and, and then we get to this moment, and it's hard to say what the tools that were used against Jesus actually looked like. There's all kinds of, of ideas based on you know, archeology span and, and tradition, but the process, the scourging process where Jesus was about to be beat, it, it was this excruciatingly painful and cruel punishment used by Roman soldiers to annihilate criminals. And that's what was coming for Jesus and the flogging, it actually served two purposes. Like as much as they wanted to beat the prisoners, they wanted to use the beating as rebel repellent. They wanted to deter anyone else from choosing the same life that this prisoner has chosen. And so, so they, they, would, they would publicly deter anyone else from doing what they did by beating this person publicly to a pulp, and so prisoners, they'd be led out and they'd be tied up to, to, uh, to a post. And it would perfectly position their back as a target for a beating. And that's what Jesus did. And they would take some sort of instrument, a whip, and they would, they would lash out on this prisoner. And, and oftentimes on the end of this whip, there would be pieces, shards of metal or rock or bone strapped to it. And, and in many cases, the flogging, just the beating process was fatal. Just that process alone. In fact, the Jewish law, it, it limited flogging to 40 lashes because they said, once you get past 40, like there, it, the survival rate is almost nothing. No one survives this at that point. And so they would count out loud up to 39, a blink away from death. And then they would back off. So the results, pain, humiliation, and degradation, stripping and squeezing every last ounce of dignity out of the human experience. You know, one New Testament theologian says that polite Roman citizens wouldn't even mention the word crucifixion or cross as the reality was so brutal, ugly, and repulsive. But crosses were the reality on which the entire Roman Empire was constructed, an empire that boasted about bringing justice and peace to the world. And the flogging process started what was going to come through completion at the crucifixion. And, and so here we are, Mark 15. We're going to start with verse 16. So Jesus has just been flogged and handed over to the Roman soldiers to finish him off. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Okay, so they're leading Jesus away and they, they, go, they go through this place, the praetorium, it's this common hall. Okay, so it's this courtyard type area in, in Pilate's quarters. And so that's kind of where he's going. And they, they call up like this whole company of soldiers. And so, so dozens and dozens and dozens of soldiers, trained killers. It's like sharks in armor. And they come, they show up. 
and they smell blood and they come quickly and they're surrounding Jesus like a pack of rabid dogs. And they come, they surround him, verse 17. And they put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. So we have to see what's going on here because we're gonna see why Jesus was arrested in the first place and this is a, a, key, a, a key component here. And they, they twist these thorns and they push it on his head and they begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And so we have this scene where Jesus is not only brutally beaten, but he's mocked. He's mocked for being who he is, the, the king. Not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the universe, the king of kings. And, and so we have this moment and I want you to just consider, like, like Jesus is being led, led in this moment. And it says that, that he's being led away, but he's also being led to a place. And so we have to, to see, like, what's going on? Yes, Jesus is being led away from the courtroom, right? That made a whole mockery of the judicial system in the first place. But, but more than a place, he's being led away from, from people, Let's think about who he's being led away from. There's this rambunctious crowd of people, all who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So there's all these people, and with each step away, those chants grow quieter, but his reality of death grows all the more real. And then there are some of his terrified followers hiding among that multitude of people all likely pointing blame to anyone else other than themselves. And they're thinking like, man, if Judas just wouldn't have betrayed Jesus, we wouldn't be here. But, but wasn't it just at the last supper that they went around the table and said like, I will never betray you, Jesus. Surely not I, right? And they all went around. It was like one by one. They're like, there's no way it could be me. And Jesus was predicting that that would happen. And while Judas was the one who sold him out for money, all of them, all of them sold him out because they, they weren't there when he needed them the most. And so they've all betrayed him. And think about it, James, John, sons of thunder, weren't you guys both clamoring to be on his right and left when he came into his glory? Like, where are you? Like, 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 like Peter, we always rag on Peter, but, 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 but think about it, Peter... Peter, just the night before when Jesus was arrested, like, like Peter is with him and been praying with him, though he's dozing off and he's praying with him. These guards come and Peter, he reacts, right? We remember this, Peter pulls out a sword and I think he was going headshot and just barely missed and he grazed a Roman soldier's ear, a guy named Malchus, and he chopped his ear off, ear falls on the ground. And Jesus like a Mr. Potato Head, picks it up and plucks it back on. I don't say that to be funny. I say that to show that it's easy for him because he's God. And even in that moment when he's being betrayed and arrested, he loves and he serves and he shows mercy to his enemies. And what that shows us is Peter, Peter with all his talk, right? Peter was like, Jesus, I'm with you till the end. But what that really showed us is that while Peter was willing to kill for Jesus, he wasn't willing to die for him. 
And so even Peter, by this time, has betrayed even knowing, he, he's, he's denied even knowing Jesus three times, and Jesus is getting, he's getting beaten. He's getting flawed, he's getting mocked, and Peter, Peter is not there. And, and so it's not just the crowds, and it's now cowarding in fear followers. More specifically, Jesus is being led away from two people. Two people, Pilate and Barabbas. One condemned Jesus to an undeserved death, and one had just been given undeserved life. But herein lies the gospel that we have to get this, that Jesus loved them all, that Jesus loved them all. Jesus loved the crowd, the ones who were, who were calling out, crucified, Jesus loved the crowd. In fact, like, like the gospels tell us that when Jesus would see a crowd, this compassion would well up inside of him and he would look on them with compassion as though they're like a flock of sheep without a shepherd. They need someone to, to love them and to care for them and to advocate for them. So he would have compassion on the crowd. Jesus loved the crowd. Jesus also loved his followers to the point where he knew they were going to betray, the, betray him, but he, he had already, already planned to restore them after the resurrection. He comes and he calls them to, to be men of faith, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to, to grow and to become the men that they have been created to be. So Jesus loved the crowd. He loved his followers, but he also loved Pilate. He loved Pilate. Like, yes, Pilate, the one who sentenced him to death because Jesus wasn't just here to command us that we love our enemies. He was here to show us how to do it. And then finally, Jesus loved Barabbas. He loved Barabbas. Like the very one who deserved the punishment that Jesus would soon endure himself because the cross that was being fashioned for Barabbas, this man on death row, it would soon be covered in the innocent blood of the Lamb of God. But that sacrifice would not only take the place of Barabbas, it'd pay for the sin debt of all humanity. Jesus loved them. But that love that love that was on display, especially in this moment. This is a theme throughout his ministry, but especially here at the end, that love was not reciprocated. In fact, at every turn, it seemed that it was met with disloyalty at best, but mostly just hate. And so all the anger that these Roman soldiers could muster, muster up, that they, they would bottle this up against these, these Jews that they saw as inferior and they, they would unleash that at a crucifixion. And, and so they viewed what they were doing as noble. They, they, they thought they were, they were part of this like purifying process that, that they had one job, one job, it was to preserve Rome and it was to annihilate rebellion. As Jesus was in the crosshairs, and so in their minds, that is what they were trained to do, but it came a mere extension of who they were to make a spectacle out of a Jew when given the chance. But they do so in such a way that would send a message to anyone watching, if you do what he did, then pain and death await. So that's the scene we have here. And so the Roman soldiers, they brutally beat the prince of peace. 
They, they flogged the friend of sinners, this man of sorrows, this man who championed the outcast, who sought the fringe, who blasted cultural and societal and socioeconomical divides, this man who kicked down racial walls, who esteemed women, who valued children, who loved his enemies, who healed the broken, who chased the impure, the unclean, the forgotten, the lonely, the disease-stricken. Jesus leaned in and he postured himself as a servant. He came not to condemn, but to save and seek out those who were lost. A doctor searching for the sick, that's who Jesus is. And they torture him for it. With, with twisted thorns that they shoved into his skull. They, they strike the good shepherd with the rod and staff. And, and now they're spitting on the spirit-led savior of the world. And just as he's taken about all he can physically handle at this point, because yes, Jesus was absolutely the incarnation. Jesus was absolutely God in the flesh, but he was fully man. And he's taken all that he can physically handle. It's time for one last trek. It's time for one last hike out of the city. And if you'll remember today's Palm Sunday and what we celebrate with the triumphal entry, it was just days prior to this moment that Jesus commandeered a colt to ride into Jerusalem for Passover, being hailed a king to the chants of Hosanna. We remember this, Jesus comes riding in, treated like a rock star and, and, and coats were on the ground, palm branches were in the air because the king was in their presence. And all this worship and all this glory that was fully due to Jesus was being poured out, literally laid down as he entered Jerusalem. Man, how the tide has turned, right? Yes, days later, and now his, his final trek out of Jerusalem is no parade. In fact, it's more of a procession, but instead of already being laid in a wooden casket, Jesus is carrying a wooden cross. And so he's being led to his death, and Mark continues in verse 21, that a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country. And they, the soldiers, forced him to carry the cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, Mark defines. Now, now this is fascinating for several reasons that they're on their way just outside the western wall of the holy city of Jerusalem to this hill called Golgotha. All right, now some folks think that this hill, that this, this small little mound, that it got its name because of the actual shape of the hill, that it, that it was the skull of a shape. But the fact that Mark bothered to translate the Aramaic for us in his writing, it insinuates that he knew it to be a place of death in and of itself. Not just a skull-shaped graveyard, but an expressway to get there. And, and then right in the middle of the story, he's being led to Golgotha, in true Mark fashion, the way that he writes, right? This is fast-paced style. He throws in this character kind of out of nowhere. But it's worth noting that, that, that I mean, imagine this route for a moment. Jesus has just been beaten. Now he's being led out from, from the soldier's barracks to Golgotha. And, and this, this little road, it's, it's actually known as the Via Dolorosa, the sorrowful road, this path that Jesus walked that prisoners would take from their beating to their execution. 
the Via Dolorosa, and, and it's the final moments before the prisoner would die, before Jesus died. It's a catwalk of humiliation where prisoners would carry their own crossbeam up a hill with soldiers yelling in their face and spitting at them and pushing them and tripping them. And that's what's happening. But at this point, Jesus, he physically cannot go any further after a sleepless night of all of this, this mocking and, and going from, from one courtroom to the next. So after this sleepless night and repeated beatings, he's there and he's struggling. And so the Roman soldiers... They commandeer, not a cult for him to ride, but, but for this foreigner from North Africa, a guy named Simon, to carry the cross instead. So can you imagine just for a moment what it would be like to carry a cross? To look the person who's about to be pinned to it in the eye and to take that on because now, now the, 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 their, their blood, what, what has been, been poured out of them, it is on you as you carry it for them. As you take up the cross and you carry it. I mean, imagine it, it, it'd be similar to being forced to transport a syringe for a lethal injection. Or being forced to, to lug a generator for an electric chair. But this wasn't just any cross. This was the cross of Christ, which in a divinely peculiar way, we have to get this. It means that Simon wasn't just carrying the cross of Jesus. He was also carrying his own cross too. Not in the sense that he deserved it like the criminal and insurrectionist Barabbas did. No, but in the sense that he deserved it like the sinner that he was and that we are. You see, that cross demands our sin, my sin and your sin and our shame. And Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. What you owe for your sin is death. But here it goes. Here's the turn. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the exchange that happened at the cross. And while Simon would go on to carry the cross of Christ momentarily up this hill, I can only imagine how Simon would go on to carry this story, to carry the gospel for the rest of his life. And I love this from Romans 8. Why do we know that to be true? Because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so God, and his sovereign creativity, even through the Via Dolorosa, he uses that road to death as an avenue to disperse the good news to the nations, to push forth the gospel. That this man from North Africa would carry the cross, but then leave from there carrying the name of Jesus. And so Simon takes up his cross and follows, which is a new visual to the words Jesus spoke earlier in Mark chapter eight, that if you would come after me, this is what it means. And so Mark continues, and as we get to the top of the hill, we're actually descending to the lowest point in human history. And so this is where it's gonna, it's gonna come to all to fruition. We're at the top of Golgotha. And in the next few sentences, Mark summarizes some profound aspects surrounding the event that's taking place. Verse 23, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
in four words. And they crucified him. Which means that at this moment, the, the Roman soldiers, they would, have, they would have positioned Jesus on the cross which means they, they, would have, they would have stretched out his arms along this crossbeam and, and, and some of them, they would have strapped his wrist to the wooden beam and they would have held him down. This man who couldn't even carry it up, they're holding him down. And in this moment, as Isaiah writes, that he was pierced. So they held out his hand, held out his arm, that he was pierced for our transgressions. <laughs> that he was crushed for our iniquity. So they hold out the other hand. So in this moment, he's being crushed, not for what he did, but for what you did and I did. So he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment, Isaiah writes in chapter 53, the punishment that brought us peace was on him that by his wounds, we are healed. So they would have crossed his legs and his ankles and then they would have fastened them fasten them to the vertical pole and they're holding him down and they pin Jesus to the cross. And it continues. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. They're gambling for his clothes. This is fulfilling prophecy from Psalm chapter 22. And verse 25 continues, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. So it's 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m. when this is happening and the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And, and so the Romans, they actually had this, uh, this tradition, what they would do at a crucifixion, they would take a placard, they would take uh, uh, like, like this little sign and they would, they would write on it like a scarlet letter, whatever that person did to deserve what they got. And they would hang it up there on the cross so anyone walking by could see why they got what they did, but also be reminded, don't do that or you're gonna end up there. And the sign read, King of the Jews. And and that was his affront. That was his crime. Proclaiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. And Mark goes on to detail how those who passed by, they, they would hurl insults at him and, and they would continue to mock him and they'd say stuff like, well, you could save others, but you can't even save yourself. If you're truly God, if you're who you say you are, why don't you just get off that cross? So he's hanging there, 9 a.m., and he hangs there. Continues verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. He's continued to be mocked and suffer, and he hangs on the cross until noon, and at noon, something happens. Darkness comes over the land, complete and utter darkness. You see, in order for Jesus to take on our sin, to submit as a sacrifice and adhere to God's will, it meant that God had to turn his back on Jesus. 
And he had to treat Jesus like sin so that he could treat sinners like Jesus. And and as Jesus took on our sin, God turned away and darkness, which represents lament and divine judgment and God's absence throughout scripture, it fell on the land for three hours. Three hours, it's pitch black, dark. And, And I wonder what was racing through the mind of Jesus while he was hanging in the darkness. This, this reminder, this ultimate lingering reminder that he is all alone. Every punch he had taken was a reminder. That every insult thrown his way was a reminder. That every strike of the hammer was a reminder. And, and we can hear it. We hear the sound of the hammer, but only Jesus felt the nails penetrate his flesh and his muscles as metal spikes would grind along his bones to pin him to a cross. Reminders now that he is all alone. And it's like the taste of his own blood dripping off of that crown It would mix with sweat and salty tears pouring from his body and it steadily would fall to the foot of the cross. The sacrificial lamb of God being slain for the sin of humanity. It's like a few years ago, my my young son, he got lost at a public pool and I I could see him across the way, but he he gets up and and his siblings weren't there. And so he's he's looking and he's crying and he's frantically searching. He's looking for me and I'm trying to get to him and and he's crying and he's hollering out for daddy. But but only this time, the son is Jesus. And instead of a trail of water on the pool deck, kind of like like, like wet, wet tattoos on the cement, that this time, This time it's blood. It's blood tracing and recording the the path Jesus had taken from the cross back through the Via Dolorosa to Pilate's quarters, to Praetorium, the courtyard, that you could see the trail that Jesus has taken. But worst of all, in this moment, when the son cries out to the father, the father is nowhere to be found. Silent. This is a different kind of loneliness. This is a different experience. The first time in all of eternity, the only time it will ever happen in history or the future that Jesus is separated from God. It's a different kind of loneliness and the physical pain, it hurts absolutely, but it pales in, com- in comparison to the spiritual pain of the separation that Jesus is experiencing between he and his father. And then verse 34, and at three in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness, Jesus breaks the silence. He cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why would Jesus say this? Because the father has forsaken the son. He's turned his back on him. And, and when some of those standing by, Mark continues, they heard this, they said, listen, he's calling out to Elijah. And someone ran, they filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone, let's see if Elijah comes down to, to take him away. In verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And John, 
who was there records when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. You know, I want to point out three drinks real quickly here that were offered to Jesus at the crucifixion, including during this bizarre scene where where the guards mistake Jesus calling out to Elijah. Now, two of the drinks are explicitly stated and offered in the text, and one is this overarching drink, but it's absolutely prevalent. You see, the first drink Mark mentions is just before Jesus is nailed to the cross in verse 23. We read past it pretty quickly. It's this wine myrrh mixed drink. Myrrh should jump out to you. It's one of the gifts that was given to Jesus' mother when he was just a newborn king by the wise men, but, but this myrrh mixed with wine. It was essentially this, this pain-numbing cocktail, a drink that you would certainly accept if you're trying to curb discomfort and suffering. So they would offer it to someone who was about to be crucified, and, and, and Jesus, in this moment, declines. He declines the first drink, the pain-numbing drink. Now, a bit later in verse 36, as Jesus is about to die, he's offered another drink. Mark describes it as this wine vinegar drink. And John details that, that after Jesus said, I am thirsty, which was also fulfilling prophecy all the way up to the very end, one of the soldiers actually dipped the sponge into this wine vinegar drink and then used a hyssop branch to lift it up to Jesus's parched lips. As I was studying about it, this particular drink is is pretty fascinating. It it would have been more of this thirst quencher, sort of like a first century Powerade type thing, just to give you that added boost to take the very next step. And Jesus accepts that drink. And so why is it significant that Jesus declined the first drink yet accepted the second? Well, I believe the answer is twofold. One, Jesus fulfilled prophecy by saying, in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, but it also ensured by not accepting the first drink, Jesus didn't shortcut the third overarching drink, which was the full cup of the wrath of God. Which this is the drink that Jesus begged for God to take from him when he cried out in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He's calling out to God, God, take this from me, yet not mine, but your will be done. But God's will was to assume the penalty of sin to give us freedom from death. And in this moment, as the hyssop branch was dipped into this wine vinegar drink and lifted up to Jesus's lips, Jesus solely rests now in the crosshairs of God's impending wrath that he's taking on the punishment for all the sins of the world and he's accepting the drink that is the full cup of the wrath of God and for Jews, for people there, for, 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 for folks who knew and understood the tradition who had gathered there, thousands and thousands of people for the Passover, when they saw the hyssop branch, they would have immediately been reminded of the first Passover night when God commanded each household among the Israelites in Egypt to sacrifice a spotless lamb and use a hyssop branch to spread the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the houses of God's people. You see, it was the blood of the Passover lamb that saved the Israelite people from physical death. But on the cross, it was the blood of the lamb of God that saved us from eternal death. And that's what's happening. And now, 
Now, as we kind of wrap up the story of the crucifixion, it's an unlikely character who ties it all together. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, this guard who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, N.T. Wright, he, he says these words. He says, you know, the opening line of the gospel of Mark speaks of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. The voice at the baptism hails Jesus as God's beloved son. The voice at the transfiguration says the same to Peter, James, and John. Caiaphas asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, God's son. The crowds mocked him with the same words. And now at last, it's not the high priest, it's not a leading rabbi, not even a loyal disciple, but a battle-hardened thug in a Roman uniform used to killing humans the way one might kill flies. He stands before the dying young Jewish man and says something which in Mark's mind sends a signal to the whole world that the kingdom has indeed come, that a new age is being born, that God has done something, the news of which will spread around the globe, that the Roman centurion, he becomes the first sane human being in Mark's gospel to call Jesus God's son and mean it. Yes, says Mark to his possibly Roman audience, and if him, why not more? And then the temple veil, the ultimate dividing curtain between people and God was torn. And out of the unexplained cosmic darkness comes God's new word of creation as at the beginning in Genesis. Because the event that's just occurred has taken the purpose of the temple from now on access to the presence of the living God is open to all through the death of his son. You see, you no longer have to go through a priest to enter the presence of God. I mean, church, could it be that there is a God with a love so wide and so deep and so wild and so vast and high and expensive, a love so scandalous and marvelous and welcoming that that God with this worldwide love would pay the horrific cost, the price of human sin, that God would give his one and only son, Jesus, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And we find ourselves standing there as Jesus walks off. He's being led away to the cross that we deserve. And we can stand there, especially some of us who've been following Jesus for a long time. And we think, no, Jesus, I deserve it. I deserve the consequences. It was me who missed the mark. It's me who's fallen. I deserve it. And he says, no, listen, no, like give me your sin. I'll take it, go and live in my freedom. You know, Judah Smith says that it's all Jesus. It's always been Jesus and it'll always be Jesus. Listen, if his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is also sufficient to sustain you through every challenge that you face. And he says, Jesus says in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And Paul writes in Romans chapter five that at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us with no guarantee that we'd live for him. So do not miss this, that it's grace that sets people free from the power of sin. Not rules, not laws, not lists to follow, but the grace of God. And let me ask, have you experienced that brand of grace? Because it's available. 
The ball is in our court. The ball is in your court because what was meant as a finale has become an encore. You see, the cross is not a dead end. It's a springboard, the cross. It's the bridge from death to life. It's the bridge to God the Father. It's the bridge from despair to hope. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the cross. It's the only bridge to abundant and eternal life. Why? Because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. Because Sunday's coming. And so listen, we're gonna wrap up today with just a little moment to reflect and respond. And let me say, if if you need prayer, I want to invite you, boldly come. Boldly come and and pray. I'm gonna be right up here. We've got other folks who'd who'd be willing to pray with you and pray for you, go to bat for you. But but, but let me also say this. If, If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, it's never been a better time that Jesus proved his love for you on the cross. And he's inviting you to follow him, that his love for you was on full display at the crucifixion. And so let's contemplate that sacrifice as we praise the one who paid 